Good evening, everybody. I'm really happy to be with you this evening, and I want to thank everybody for coming out tonight to see so much interest in these things, uh, because we live in a time where there's incredible things happening, and yet uh, people seem to be not interested or, or not recognize those things that are happening around us. picture that you're uh, seeing here, these are beautiful birds, a uh, stork, um, and uh, this picture is taken in, the, in uh, the land of Israel, in the north of Israel, and uh, Israel is a very incredible place uh, for migratory birds, and uh, you'll just be able to see that on this map, because uh, throughout the whole of uh, the northern hemisphere, in, in Europe and in Russia, and, and, and even further uh, east, um, you can see all those green uh, arrows of uh, migratory birds and storks that come through the land of Israel and down into Africa. So thousands of miles those, those birds travel. <clears throat> it's fascinating um, in many ways, but um, it's also interesting when we look at the Jewish people because they too, even though they have uh, been in that land, have been scattered out of that land. And they too have gone all over the earth just like these migratory birds have. In AD 70, the Jewish nation was destroyed and the Jews were scattered from their nation um, into all the earth. And this picture is from the Arch of Titus in Rome. And it's quite a fascinating picture because you can see some of the things from the ancient Jewish temple that have been engraved by the Romans. You can see the candlestick and you can see some of the, uh, the silver trumpets over there. Um, and, uh, and so the, the Jewish people uh, were scattered out of their land. Their nation was destroyed and they were dispersed among all nations. And those things in themselves were really astonishing fulfillments of Bible prophecy because near the beginning of the Bible, in the writings of Moses in Deuteronomy, it said that these things would happen. If the Jewish people did not follow God's ways, they would be scattered. Um, this map shows where Jews were expelled from throughout uh, Europe um, during the Middle Ages. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 65 uh, God had said that among these nations that you're scattered in, you will find no ease. You will be expelled from one country to another. Um, and also in, in that same prophecy, in the writings of Moses in Deuteronomy, it says that in those lands that you're dispersed to, you will serve other gods. And uh, this map shows where Jews were forcibly converted to other religions. Also in that same place... God said that your life would hang in doubt before you. And there's uh, no greater demonstration, I think, of that than uh, what happened in the Holocaust. And, uh, and this picture really just um, displays that idea. Again, in Deuteronomy, uh, God said that you, the Jewish people would be an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword. And I hesitate even to put these pictures up because they're uh, horrible propaganda. Um, but this is exactly uh, what happened. And if we were to look at the Jewish people in 100 years ago, 200 years ago, um, we would be like the prophet that we just read about in Ezekiel, where God said, see this valley full of dry bones. Um, can they live? Can they come back to life again? And the prophet said, God, you know, because he couldn't himself bring him himself to say yes, because it was an impossibility 
for, for dead bodies to come back to life. And near the end of that section that we read, it gives us an interpretation of those things. And God says that the bones that you saw, Ezekiel, they are the whole house of Israel. They are the nation of Israel. And they're cut off from their parts. And they're scattered. Um, and, but God says, I'm going to bring you out of your graves, out of the nations where you've been scattered. And I'm going to bring you back to the nation of Israel and make you into a nation again. And not just a nation like all the other nations, but a spiritual nation, a nation that would have spirit in it, a nation that would have the words of the prophet living within them. And I believe we're in the process of seeing those things come to pass. So we've got um, a display over here of many books from around this time before uh, that talk about the return of the Jews. Because people looked at some of the evidence that we've just briefly looked at in the writings of Moses about what happened to the Jewish people. And they looked at that and they said, look, if all those things have happened like God said they would, then why shouldn't the other things happen? And so they wrote that the Jews would return to the land of Israel again. This is a man called Thomas Newton in 1754. And I know that's a little small, but I just wanted to put up the actual page out of the book um, for you to see. <clears throat> We're going to start at the top right, where it says, Our Savior's words are very memorable. And he's quoting from Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. It, Jerusalem, is still trodden down of the Gentiles, and consequently the times of the Gentiles are not yet fulfilled. Thomas Newton's writing in 1754, the Jews are scattered throughout the earth. At this time, when, when Thomas Newton is writing this, the Jewish people are living in about a hundred different countries and speaking about 80 different languages. That's absolutely astonishing to think, you know, and, and that depiction of a valley of dead, dry bones, as far as a nation is concerned, you couldn't have a more accurate description of what the Jewish people were like at that time. A hundred different countries speaking over 80 different languages. How would you ever bring that back together? And yet Thomas Newton in 1754, he reads the words of Jesus that Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And he, and he goes on, we'll keep reading. It is still trodden down by the Gentiles and consequently the times of the Gentiles are not yet fulfilled. When the times of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled, then the expression implies that the Jews shall be restored. And for what reason can we believe that though they are dispersed among all nations, yet by a constant miracle they are kept distinct from all, but for the further manifestation of God's purposes toward them? The prophecies have been accomplished in the greatest exactness in the destruction of their city, in its continuing still subject to strangers, in the dispersion of their people, and in their living still separate from all people. And why should not the remaining parts of the same prophecies be fully accomplished too in their restoration at the proper season when the times of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled? And he goes to say how the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. So he says, he looks at the Jewish people, he says, how is it possible that they live throughout all the earth? As we said, 100 different countries and they they speak 80 different languages how is it that they remain dis, a distinct people because if i took a group of canadians and, and took them to another country a completely different culture 
How long would they be Canadians for? Would it be 50 years? Would it be 100 years? Maybe 150 years, but pretty soon they're not going to be Canadians. They're going to be in that culture where they live, and they're going to be part of that culture and, and adopt the customs of those people. And yet the Jewish people kept to be distinct for so long. And he says, how is that? Why is that? He says, God must have a further purpose with them. And, and he writes then how God is going to bring them back to the land again. So here we have somebody watching. And there were many people, as I said, and you'll take a look after all those books over on the right-hand side there. There were people watching and saying, the Jews are going to return to their land. It might have been a minority as far as the whole world was concerned, but there was a significant number of them. Um, I don't want to be too corny, but this is a very popular activity in Israel, is, is watching for the migratory birds coming back again. And, uh, and again, there's uh, some of those storks. Now, I'm just going to take you to, uh, this is Ethiopia. These are not um, Ethiopians. These are actually uh, Jewish boys and girls in school in Ethiopia. Because, as I said, Jews were living in a hundred different countries. And, uh, and there was a, a Jewish community in Ethiopia. It had been cut off from other Jewish communities for at least, at least 1,500 years. Maybe longer than that. Um, but they kept many of the customs that, um, that they had. They still had many of the customs. Um, in every village, they lived in villages and they uh, engaged in agriculture. In every village, there was some kind of a synagogue. There was a Torah written in, uh, in an ancient language that they had. Um, there was, uh, they fasted on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. They kept the Jewish feasts. And, uh, and so there was this Jewish community that was just completely isolated, but still had these, these customs. And uh, the little boys, when they saw the migratory birds, when they saw the storks fly over, they would, they would sing a song and they would say, Stork, stork, how are things in Jerusalem? Because they knew that the storks would go from Africa and they would pass through the land of Israel on their way north. So all the little boys, as the storks would fly over, they would say, stork, stork, how are things in Jerusalem? And they dreamt that one day they may be also able to go there and to, to go to Jerusalem. That happened uh, in uh, 1984 and 1985. There was Operation Moses, as it was called, where 7,000 Jews were airlifted to, to Israel. Um, this is a picture of that. <clears throat> Um, it's also the, uh, the world record for the most uh, passengers on an, uh, on, a, on an airliner at one time. Uh, there were 1,086 passengers um, on that plane. And when it landed, there was 1,088. There was two more because two babies were born on the flight. Um, so that was uh, Operation Moses. And, um, and after that, there was Operation Solomon in 1991 where in just 36 hours, um, uh, 14, over 14,000 Jews came back to the land of Israel. And, and it's absolutely incredible. Um, not, this is not the only um, time. By the way, this is, uh, this is one of the Ethiopian Jews uh, then in Israel, uh, reading from a, a more modern Torah. And uh, this is uh, very fascinating. This is um, one of the ancient... Um, Torahs that the Ethiopian Jews had in their community that has now come to Israel 
and uh, was carried through the desert, was almost stolen by bandits, and came on, on the flight, and came to Israel, and now um, is uh, in Israel. Um, and uh, so, absolutely fascinating. But this is, um, this is in about 1949. This is, um, this is the return of Jews from Yemen, who also came, who also came um, on a special operation who were airlifted to, to Israel. And so from all over the world, we had uh, Jewish people returning at the same time. And how was it that these people from all, in all these different countries of the world, how was it that something in them um, made them all want to do this at the same time? But that's exactly, um, exactly what happened. In, uh, in 1947, there was a lot of debate about you know, whether there should be uh, a nation of Israel or, or not. And uh, a man called Chaim Weizmann, you may have, have heard of him. He was very prominent in those days. Um, and he made an appeal to the United Nations. And he read these, uh, these verses from Isaiah 11. Uh, Chaim Weizmann wasn't really a religious man, but he knew that there were people in his audience that this would appeal to. Actually, in New York, him and... Uh, uh, Abby Eben, the famous diplomat, were in the hotel room, and they were looking through the Gideon Bible because they didn't have a Bible um, of their own. They got the hotel Gideon Bible, and they, they found this, this verse. But it's pretty incredible to me that this verse was read before the whole of the United Nations, and so that people would hear about these things. People would know these things because God said the Jewish people about them, he said, you are my witnesses. So if we want to know, is there a God or is there not a God, then we should look at, at the Jewish people. So Isaiah 11, verse 11 and 12, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. And that's an important phrase, the second time, because there was two dispersions of the Jewish people, once to Babylon, and they returned, and then once in AD 70 and throughout all the world. And, and, and this is, uh, the prophet says, God's going to suck his hand again the second time and bring his people back. And he will set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is a book by the historian Martin Gilbert, and that's exactly what, what it says. From the ends of the earth, the Jews in the 20th century. We've just looked at two stories. We've looked at Jews coming back briefly from Ethiopia, and we've looked at Jews coming back from Yemen. But this happened from all over the world. Um, this map shows Jews how they came back after World War II and the Holocaust um, and made their way ac across Europe, many times illegally across borders, trying to get to the land of Israel where they came in boats um, and sometimes swam ashore. Um, you've probably heard of the Exodus where they were captured by the British and, and the British tried to send them away um, at that time. And uh, many Jews returned from uh, Arab lands from 1948 to 1967. So really, it was from the four corners of the earth. And every single story is a miracle in the sense that when they were in dispersion, that they kept their identity, that they didn't absorb into the culture, that they kept some of their, their beliefs and, and so forth. And that they retained an expectation of, of returning to the land of Israel. And then at the same time in history, all these communities started going back to the same place. It's unheard of. There is no other people. There is no other culture in this earth in history that has had any of these type of events that have happened to them. It has never happened to anyone else. Only, only one people. Then... Uh, 
So the Jews came back, 1947, 1948. Um, this is another incredible story. These are the, the caves at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And you may have heard of the story, how they were found by a, uh, by a Bedouin a shepherd boy. He found those, but he, he wasn't able to identify what they were. He thought they were kind of neat, kind of special. He brought them back to his family. They looked at them. They didn't understand what they were. The family went to, to Bethlehem, to, a, uh, to a, an antiquities dealer, and, uh, and they sold them to them, uh, probably for not very much money. And, and they had them in, in the store. They, they couldn't read the writing. They couldn't understand it, but they knew that uh, by this point they thought, well, this must be something to do with the Jewish people. It must be something Hebrew, and they threw some contacts they got in contact with, uh, with a, uh, a man at the, the Hebrew University, Eliezer Sukunik, and, uh, and they wanted him to come and see them. They had a little piece that they sent. Uh, but this was in 1947, uh, and uh, around the time of the vote at the United Nations. And it was very tense. It was a very controversial time, uh, quite dangerous. Uh, there was a lot of fighting going on. Jerusalem was divided up into different areas. There was checkpoints. The British had checkpoints everywhere. Um, Eliezer knew this. He also knew that um, the, uh, the UN vote was coming up, and he really wanted to go and, and see these. He was very interested in them. Um, so he, he got up that morning with the intention of going to Bethlehem. The UN vote was the next day. He knew after the UN vote there would be a lot of disturbances, maybe some riots, and it wouldn't be safe to travel. Uh, so he said to his wife, I'm just going to Bethlehem today to look at some uh, scrolls. And his wife said, no, you're not. You're staying home. Um, so he, he had to stay home. He had to do what his wife said. Um, but the UN vote was uh, delayed by one day. And so the next morning, he, he, uh, he took the initiative, and he didn't tell his wife his plans that day. He got on the bus, and he went to Bethlehem. And he bought the, the Dead Sea Scrolls on that day. He brought them back to his apartment in Jerusalem, and he was looking at them as the UN vote was taking place. And... Uh, <clears throat> The scroll in the display there, the replica of it, wasn't the one that was bought on that day. That's uh, the other Isaiah scroll. Uh, but one of the Isaiah scrolls was bought on that day for the, for the, uh, for the nation of Israel. And if you're familiar, um, and you can read some of the, the translations in the, from the columns are on that. Uh, you can look at it afterwards. Uh, we, we just saw how Heim Weissman read Isaiah chapter 11 to the United Nations. That was on the very day that scroll was found. The, one of the Isaiah scrolls was bought for the nation of Israel on the very day that the UN voted. And uh, Eliezer's son, uh, which was actually a famous archaeologist, Yigal Yadin, uh, he said, he said, I can't help but feeling there's some kind of a coincidence in, in, in the fact that this happened this way. So that's quite fascinating. Of course, you can go to Israel today and see the, uh, the scrolls in the shrine of the book. Now, the other thing that we haven't talked about, uh, we mentioned briefly that the Jews spoke about 80 different languages if we were to go over 100 years ago. How do you ever take people that speak all different languages and bring them together again to be one people? That's impossible because nobody would be able to talk to each other. According to the Bible, it tells us that's how the nations were scattered and people were divided because they couldn't speak the same language. God confounded their tongue. So how do you ever bring people together who do not speak the same language? It was a really big problem for those people that dreamt of bringing the, the Jewish people back together again. Um, of how, how would you ever do that? 
This is, a, uh, this is the Academy of the Hebrew Language in uh, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And I wanted to visit there. I was interested in uh, the man who brought back the Hebrew language. His name is Eliezer Ben Yehuda. And uh, there's a museum uh, here about him. And I, was, I had read a book about him, and I was very interested in the Hebrew language. So I wanted to go there. Um, but like any university campus, I was trying to uh, buy some uh, school books for my son today. Uh, a student at the, and he was at the University of Waterloo, and we were kind of getting lost on the campus. These places are massive, and the Hebrew University is no different. So um, my wife and I were wandering around, walking, trying to find this place. We didn't know where it was, and we uh, we bumped into this girl who was. Uh, we asked her for directions, and she said, "Well, I'm going there right now." So why don't you come with me? So we went with her, and we were talking to her, and she told us how she belonged to a committee that looked for lost words. Um, so even today, there's still people that are going through old ancient Hebrew books, looking for words, and then bringing them back into the language again. So they're still building the language today. Um, because the Hebrew language was what we would call a dead language. It was a language that was used only mostly for study, sort of like Latin would be. So the Jews read the, the Hebrew language when they did uh, religious study. So they had an, a knowledge of it to that extent. But they didn't use it in everyday speech. And it wasn't a living language. So as new things were invented, like a bicycle or, or a car or a taxi or whatever it was, there wasn't a word to, to use. You couldn't you couldn't use it. So it wasn't a living language. It wasn't changing. It wasn't adapting. Um, it was just used in that one way. Um, but this man called Eliezer Ben Yehuda, um, this is uh, some of the things in the museum, some of his furniture. He wrote a dictionary um, in his lifetime, um, which was very important, a part of his work of, of bringing the language back again. But he recognized this. He wasn't a religious man. He was a secular Jew, as many of those early uh, Jews were, um, but he, said, he recognized that there are two things without which the Jews will not be a nation, the land and the language. He said, in order to bring a people back together again, we need, they need to be in their land, and they need to have a common language to speak, and so he, he recognized it has to be our language, and, and so he moved to Israel, and he, and he really... Uh, worked at bringing that language back again. An incredible thing. He raised the first native Hebrew-speaking child in probably about 2,000 years because he, in his house you could only speak the Hebrew language. And so that's all that child ever heard. And so it grew up to, to be a native speaker. Amazing, amazing man. Uh, but the, he kind of missed one thing off, which you may have noticed, that the two things without which the Jews will not be a nation, the land, the language, and their God. Um, really, for the Jews to be a nation as God intended, they need him, and that's probably the most important part for sure. Well, Zionism, as it was, was a secular movement to begin with. It was a movement that it looked for a solution to the Jewish problem, to Jewish suffering, to the scattering of the Jewish people, um, the persecution that the Jewish people had suffered, but it was a secular movement. It didn't, it didn't look at uh, God as being part of that solution. So uh, Theodore Herzl, he, he's speaking about Zionism. He said, what Zionism? It's the attempt to create a legally assured homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine to solve the Jewish problem. That's um, what he saw. So he said, well, will it be a theocracy? Are we trying to create a theocracy? No. He said, we're going to... We're going to keep religion out of this. Um, and uh, it's part of our culture, but, uh, but it, it's not going to be part of our state. 
Um, and uh, when he talked about the language, um, this is quite interesting. We can read it. He, he said, it might be suggested that our uh, want of a common current language would present difficulties. Obviously, it would. We cannot converse with one another in, in the Hebrew language. Who amongst us has a sufficient acquaintance with Hebrew to ask for a railway ticket in that language? Such a thing cannot be done, yet the difficulty is very easily circumvented. Every man can preserve the language in which his thoughts are at home. Of course, that's ludicrous to think that that would work as to bringing a people together. Um, and so, to begin with, this was a very secular movement. And uh, this is uh, a rabbi that, um, that actually perished in the Holocaust. But during the Holocaust, he wrote a book, and he wrote about how the, the religious Jews... Um, opposed the return to Zion. So the secular Jews, like Theodore Herzl, like Eliezer ben Yehuda, brought the language back. Um, they were the ones that were moving this. The religious Jews, um, they couldn't accept that it was the secular Jews that would do this. They thought the Messiah would come to them in the dispersion and bring them back to their land again. So they opposed it. Um, the Orthodox Jewry, they opposed this undertaking. Not only did they oppose it, but they caused the simple Orthodox Jews to despise the rebuilding of the land so much that if one of them begins to speak or get enthused about it, they consider him repulsive and abominable. They all rebuke him, saying, You are a Zionist and an abhorrent and an abomination. Thus they have truly caused the desirable land to be despised and detested. Uh, and he, he changed when he, when, he, when, when he wrote the book. He said, We've made a great mistake. Um, we should have, we should have uh, embraced this. But when we, when we come to the land of Israel, it brings us to the Bible. Um, if any of you have ever gone to the land of Israel, um, I mean, wherever you go, there is the Bible. It's where the Bible happened. So all the Bible events took place there. So as soon as you're driving along and you, you see something, you think, well, that's where this happened in the Bible. And, uh, and then when you come to the Hebrew language, it brings you... To, to the Bible. Um, this is a, a book that's written about Hebrew coming back as a language. And, uh, and he talks about um, they, the religious Jews, uh, and, and the heretic that he's going to talk about is Eliezer ben Yehuda, the man who brought the Hebrew language back again. The religious Jews believed that Eliezer ben Yehuda was a heretic because you couldn't use the holy language in everyday use. And so they, they opposed the, the bringing of the Hebrew language back again. So they said, just as they, the religious Jews, could hardly have surmised that this heretic, through his unwearying, unwearying service to the Hebrew word, unconsciously aroused the religious forces latent within it. For there is no such thing as a creedless Hebrew. There's no Hebrew without the Bible. As soon as you start looking at Hebrew, it's going to bring you to the Bible. He who conjures up Hebrew at the same time involuntarily opens sluices for the obstructed springs of an ancient religious civilization. Though he may not welcome them, neither can he rid himself of the spirits he has called up. So when we uh, come to the Hebrew language, it brings us to the Bible. When we come to the land of Israel, it brings us to the Bible. When we dig, whenever there's construction in Israel, you start digging. Oh, archaeology uh, shut down the construction site. We have a, a year delay because now we have to find out what we just discovered. Every single time. Um, we come to the land of Israel, we find the Dead Sea Scrolls. It brings us to the Bible. Everything brings us to the, to the Bible. 
So to begin with, the Jews returned as a secular movement, but they began to come closer to their original biblical culture as they did so. Now, it's very important to recognize that fact because we've talked about the, the miracle of the Jews returning to their land. And you might say to me, well, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. People believed that the Jews would return, and so they tried to return to the land, and they fulfilled the prophecy themselves. Therefore, it's, you know, that's what happened. It's not amazing. But the thing was, is the way that it happened, it wasn't the religious Jews that believed in these things that went back to the land. It was the ones who didn't believe. It was the ones who didn't believe in the Bible that said, this is a good idea, let's go and do this, and did this. And the ones that believed the Bible said, no. We don't want the Hebrew language to come back again because it should only be used for religious study. And we don't think we should go back to the land of Israel. We should stay in the diaspora and wait for the Messiah to come and, and, and get us. So it was not a self-fulfilling prophecy because they, the ones that did it didn't even believe in the Bible. Um, and so that argument is, is uh, not even close to being um, anything that's worth, uh, worth thinking about because it's not the way um, that it happened. We've talked about how the religious Jews opposed the return to the land. There were some that didn't. Um, in, the, in the early days, there was a Rabbi Cook, who was the first chief rabbi of, of uh, Israel, um, in, the, in those Jews that had returned. And he said, the hope for the redemption is the force that sustains Judaism, the Jewish religion, in the diaspora. Those outside the land of Israel, what sustains their belief is the hope for the coming of the Messiah, the redemption. But he goes, he says, the, the Judaism, the Jewish religion of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, is the very redemption. What's happening here, he's saying, this is leading to the redemption of, of the Jewish people and the whole world. And, uh, and so he saw something different. And that idea began to grow. And as the Jewish people um, had come to their land and they started to be more connected because they were connected more with the Bible from what they found, what they discovered, from being in the land, from the discovery of things like the Dead Sea Scrolls, from archaeology discoveries. We're going to look at some of those. Um, and, it, and, it, uh, and, and they recognized in the miracles of the uh, Jews coming back from Ethiopia, the Jews coming back from Yemen, the Jews coming back from all over the world, the resurrection of the language. And they started to say, look, this is too much. This is, being, this is fulfilling the prophecies that we have treasured for so long. This can't be a coincidence. And this idea was growing. And, uh, and what happened in, in 1967 at the time of the Six-Day War, um, suddenly uh, Israel, through, through what happened in the Six-Day War, they ended up being in a part of the land that was a very... Biblically significant, um, the, the what's today known as the West, the West Bank area. Um, it's a very biblically significant area. I mean, uh, when you travel through the West Bank, if you were to start in the north and follow the the main road down through through the West Bank today, I mean, you're just gonna you're you're following right where Abraham first walked through the land. So the first city that Abraham came to when he came into the land is Shechem, and the first city you're going to come down as you go down what's known today as Route 60. Is, is Shechem. Um, and then you're going to you travel through Bethel, where Abraham went next and built an altar. Then you're going to pass Jerusalem. Then you're going to pass uh, Bethlehem, where, where Rachel died. And then you're going to go to Hebron, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and Leah are buried. And then you keep traveling, and eventually you come to Beersheba, uh, where Abraham built the wells. So that whole area suddenly 
um, Jews could go there again, and and uh, and then uh, what's today known as religious Zionism, Jews that believed that this was the hand of God that had brought them back. So when we talk about uh, you hear about religious Zionism, the difference between religious Jews that are Zionists um, compared to other Jews, like the ones that originally opposed the return to the land of Israel, is that they recognize that this is the hand of God that brought us here. And, uh, and this quote here, which is from uh, Professor Dan Michman from Bar-Alan University, um, he's saying that this, this community that was growing with these people that had this idea and recognized that this is God's hand that's doing these things, that was waiting for an opportunity for expression. What happened in 1967, some, all these biblically significant areas are open, and the people that went there were the people who believed that, uh, that this was the hand of God. Events, again, like in 1967, uh, because from uh, 1948 until 1967, Jews could not go to the Western Wall. All of a sudden, in 1967, you can go to the Western Wall and pray again. This is a quote from uh, one of the soldiers in, uh, in 1967, June, uh, on June 7th. His name was, uh, is uh, Yossi Ronan. And uh, he was trying to find the Western Wall. So they had, uh, they had come into Jerusalem, the soldiers had. Many of them were trying to find the Western Wall. Uh, and he wasn't a religious man, as he says. He said, I'm walking, down, uh, I'm walking right now down the steps towards the Western Wall. He says, I am not a religious man. I have never been. But this is the Western Wall, and I'm touching the stones of the Western Wall. And when you listen to him, actually, the recording of him saying it, you can hear the emotion in his voice. Again, the land of Israel brings you back to the Bible. Um, this is a, a picture of uh, a man called Shlomo Gorin blowing the shofar at, this, at, the, uh, at the Western Wall in 1967. And that, um, those events then had an effect on, on Jews throughout the world. And other people who recognized that this was a fulfillment of prophecy as we looked at last night. <clears throat> this is just from a, a year or two ago. Uh, the current Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. And, and uh, Netanyahu is not a, uh, a he's not really a religious man uh, in that sense. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, he recognizes. He recognizes that something's going on. Uh, he says... At the United Nations, he said, In our time, the biblical prophecies are being realized, as the prophet Amos said. They shall rebuild ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall till gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant them upon their soil, never to be uprooted again. Ladies and gentlemen, the people of Israel have come home, never to be uprooted again, he said. So he recognized, look, this is what the ancient prophets said. This is exactly what's happening. Um, today. And uh, I, I talked to you a little bit about the archaeology. Uh, this is uh, some of the archaeology that's currently being done um, near uh, in the old city of Jerusalem today. So this is just south of the Temple Mount in the area uh, known as the City of David. And uh, there's been very many uh, fascinating discoveries there. Um, this, this piece of wall here, and I'll just highlight that, this piece of wall dates back to the time of Nehemiah. Um, and uh, this would be the wall that, uh, that when they were building it in Nehemiah, you read about it, and they said, even if a fox goes up, he's going to break this wall down. 
and part of it's still standing there today. Well, just behind this wall is a place where they have found many ancient clay seals. Um, because most likely this room was the place where they kept scrolls. When the city was destroyed and it was burned up by the Babylonians, all the scrolls got burned up, but all the clay seals survived. And so they found um, tons of these clay seals. And, uh, and they're all people that we read about in our Bible. So again, it brings us to the Bible and it says, look, these are real people. These people are really existed. So we know that this, this book is, is based on historical facts because we, we found all these clay seals. Um, this one is, uh, let's read the verse, Jeremiah 38, verse 1. Uh, then Shephatiah, the, the son of Matan, and Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, and Jukel, the son of Shelemiah. So um, that's the name that's on this uh, um, clay impression. Um, Jukel, the son of Shelemiah, and Pashur, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken unto all the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord. And there we found his, his clay seal. This one is uh, from Gedaliah, uh, son of Pashur, Ben Pashur. It talks about it in Jeremiah 38, verse 1. Um, again, this one is from uh, Gemariahu ben Shaphan, a Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, in Jeremiah 36, verse 10. There's the verse, then Baruch, uh, then read Baruch in the words, sorry, in the book of the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan. So that's Gemariahu ben Shaphan. Um, the scribe in the higher court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the ears of people. Again, there's his, his clay seal. So again, it brings us, not only does this prove the historical accuracy of the Bible, again, we dig in the land of Israel, it brings us to the Bible. God is constantly bringing us to the Bible. He says, look, the Jews are my witnesses. Look at what's going on here. Um, these things are undeniable. Um, this is one belonging to Hezekiah, belonging to Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of, of Judah. And it's fascinating because there's actually two seals that have been found uh, for Hezekiah. And uh, there's two different versions. This one may have been after he was cured of his illness uh, because there's a sun with beams and, and wings. So it's uh, interesting to think about that. Um, and there's um, 2 Chronicles chapter 30 verse 1 records how Hezekiah sent, um, sent to, we'll just read it, sent uh, to Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. So it tells us how Hezekiah sent out letters to Israel and said, because Israel and Judah were divided at that time, he sent letters and said, come and celebrate the Passover. And here's Hezekiah's seal. This is what would have been put on those letters. They've recently done some archaeological work at the Pool of Siloam. And so now when you go to the Pool of Siloam, you can see more uh, what it would have looked like at the time of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so from the Pool of Siloam, you could walk up to the temple. And so you would go and, and, and purify yourself in the Pool of Siloam. And then you would ascend up to the temple um, along these steps. Here's an artist's impression of how that would have looked. And, uh, and here's some of those steps today that they've uncovered uh, from that road that you would walk up to the temple. And uh, today, uh, that's uh, my wife in the drainage ditch. You can't walk up the road, but you can walk up the drainage ditch up to the temple. Um, and so they recently did archaeological work up this drainage ditch. 
And it's really fascinating because a drainage ditch tends to collect things. So if you're walking along and you drop um, some money, it rolls down and rolls into the drainage ditch. So they found some really interesting things in here, including some, uh, this is where some of the rebels hid in 8070. They found a dagger there. Um, but they also found um, a bell shaped like a pomegranate, golden, from the garments of the high priest. So the high priest goes to the pool of Siloam. He walks up the way to the temple. As he's walking up, the bell falls off his garment. It rolls down and falls into the drain. And they found that bell there. And Exodus chapter 28 tells us how the high priest had on his garment bells and pomegranates. So absolutely, absolutely amazing. But that bell had a significance. Because as the high priest went into the tabernacle, into the temple on the Day of Atonement, you could hear the high priest coming. You could hear the noise of the high priest as he went because he had bells around his garment. And that had a significance. Um, <clears throat> in uh, Psalm 89, it says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. And then it says, Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. So the high priest's sound would be heard. It was like the gospel going out. And his sound would be heard throughout the city as he walked up the way to the temple. And so in, uh, in Romans chapter 10, it says, For they have not all obeyed the gospel, the Jewish people. For Isaiah says, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, truly. Their sound went out into the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. And in 2 Chronicles, it tells us how all the kings of the earth came to hear King Solomon in the ancient kingdom of Judah to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. That was the purpose of the nation of Israel in ancient times. It was to be a light to the nations so that other people would come there and they would learn about God. They would hear the joyful sound of the gospel and they would hear about God and they would come to Jerusalem and learn about him. And that's exactly what the, uh, the Queen of Sheba came to Jerusalem at the time of Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart and learned about those things. So there was a kingdom of God in the past before it was destroyed. First Chronicles chapter 28, it says, Howbeit the Lord God of Israel chose me before all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. King David says, And of all my sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. So there was a kingdom in the past. It was the kingdom of God. And the purpose of that kingdom was for all peoples in the earth to come and hear the wisdom that God had and to hear the joyful sound of the gospel. And that's what happened, particularly at the times of King David and King Solomon. Unfortunately, that kingdom didn't fulfill that role. It, uh, as we've said, they rebelled against God's word. They didn't uh, keep God's word. And so God says that that kingdom would end. And uh, he says to remove the diadem and take off the crown. 
I'm just going to read the last verse there. God says, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. So it would be overturned with the Babylonian captivity. The Greeks would come, the Romans would come, and they would be scattered throughout the, throughout the world as we've seen. Until one would come whose right that throne was, and God would give it him. And I believe, and it can be proven from the Bible in Luke, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, when the angel comes to Gabriel, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who had the right to sit upon that throne. This is uh, the entrance to the uh, new Jewish town of, of Shiloh. Um, and it's fascinating because on the sign it says, uh, it says Shiloh in the middle. And then it says, Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord. We will bless him from the house of the Lord. Um, from Psalm 118, which uh, I believe actually is a prophecy of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shiloh is obviously where the tabernacle was. And, uh, and you can go there today and you can see exactly where the tabernacle stood. There's no question uh, that it stood there at the time of Samuel. There's a nice leveled rectangular place um, in, in an area of mountains. Uh, it's just above the road as the Bible describes where it was. And you can even see the place where they made the oil, where they pressed the oil for the lampstand in the temple. Um, as I said, these are very biblically significant areas. As soon as you come to this, it brings you to the Bible and makes you recognize those things. This is looking from the site of the tabernacle uh, where Samuel would have been um, just north up that road that I said this is where Abraham traveled. And there on the top of another hill, so as you're standing um, behind me as I'm taking this picture is the ruins of, of Shiloh and above the ruins of Shiloh is the new city of Shiloh. And as you look south here, you can see uh, another Jewish town on the mountains of Israel. Now I'm going to show you an incredible quote. This is from a book called Eureka. It was written uh, in about 1860-ish by a man called John Thomas. And he's looking at Bible prophecy. And he's looking at what the scriptures say and he's looking into the future. Um, and he's looking at the time of the coming, the return of Jesus Christ that he believed in. And he says... It may be remarked here that there will have been a considerable gathering of Israelites upon the mountains of Israel before the invasion of the country by Gog, and he's talking about a prophecy in Ezekiel 38, and his capture of Jerusalem. And today you go there, and on every mountaintop you see Jewish communities. This is exactly what the Bible said was going to happen. So the Bible said, we've looked at how the Bible said the Jews would be scattered and what would happen to them. And the faith that people had in those things to say the other prophecies are going to be fulfilled. Then we've looked at the return of the Jews from over a hundred different countries back to the land of Israel. How from speaking 80 different languages, they came to speak a language that had been dead and revived again. But as Ezekiel 37 told us, the bones came together. There was sinews that joined the bones together like a common language. There was flesh on the bones. The people came back. And yet there was no spirit. There was no spiritual life in the bones. And so God says there is going to yet come spiritual life into, into those bones. Now what's fascinating is that we saw how that originally the Jews returned as a secular movement who didn't believe in the Hebrew scriptures. And yet we've seen how that is changing, slowly changing. In our own society here, 
it's becoming more secular. Everywhere in the West is becoming more secular and, and does, is not interested in the, in the Bible. And yet, in Israel, it's the opposite. This is uh, from a, uh, a news report um, from, uh, <clears throat> from earlier this year. And uh, it says, the question is, is how religious are Israelis? It says, figures released ahead of Israel's 69th Independence Day reveal secular Jews are a minority, with most identifying as religious or traditional. Amazing that a country is becoming more religious, but it's because they're becoming more connected to, to the Bible because of where they are as a people, and it's having a tremendous effect upon them. Now, this, these events have always been controversial, and it's not my purpose tonight to get into the, to, to the controversial um, discussions. Um, there's often violence that takes place in the land of Israel. This is a, a picture from a bus bombing. What I want to point out at this right now is another incredible um, quote. Again, we just, we just referred to John Thomas. This is also John Thomas in a book called Anatolia. He wrote in 1868. He's talking about the coming of Christ. He says, the time of the return of Christ and, and the coming again of the kingdom of God, he says, the time, however, fast approaches. And the nearer it arrives, the closer we get to that date, the more important do all questions become. What, is, what, what are the greatest questions? What are the most controversial questions as we get close to that time? He says, all the questions bearing upon Judah's land and Zion, the city of their king. Those are two of the most controversial topics in the world today. The land of Judah, which is mostly the southern area of the West Bank, and Zion, Jerusalem. Those are two extremely controversial topics in, in our world today. And this man writing in 1868, he says, the closer we get to those dates, the more controversial it's going to become. Isn't that incredible? So... Time after time after time again and again, we have seen all these things being accomplished. And now we say, well, you know, what does that mean? Um, what does that mean for us? Well, in Joel chapter 3, the prophet says, For behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. That's exactly what happened in 1967. And we're 50 years on from that date. Because, as I said, Judah is the, uh, the heir of the West Bank and, and Jerusalem. That happened in, in 1967. And then he goes on to say, he says, In that time, I'm going to bring all nations against Israel. And that's the time when, when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. And so, it's a very controversial time. We see the spirit within the nations um, against those things that are happening. And it's a controversial time, even within the, the Jewish nation themselves, as they decide and they try and grapple with these, with these big questions. Um, this is uh, a cover of a book, and uh, the picture is quite fascinating, um, because um, this is actually, if you, if you follow events in Israel at all, this is from uh, when the, uh, the Jewish communities in Gaza, in Gush Katif, as it was called, were evacuated. And the people didn't want to leave, so they actually sent in the army. It was Ariel Sharon who, who did that. And they actually forcibly took the people out of their homes. 
um, and there was a, it was a time of great controversy and division. The, uh, the boy's shirt on the back, it has an acronym for God's name, for Hashem, um, uh, the name of God. Of course, the Jews don't say the actual name. But it says, uh, Hashem, he is the king on the boy's shirt. That's, that's the controversy. That is the controversy. Is, is the Jewish state going to, is it bringing us to the redemption? Or is it just a place for the Jews to live? That's the controversy in Israel. And, uh, and maybe throughout many other places in the world today. Um, and we believe from the scriptures that this is leading to something greater. Not just for the Jewish people, but for all who, who look into these things. All who follow these things. All who um, eventually the whole earth will be blessed. And, and, and Israel will be a light to the nations when um, we believe it has a righteous rulership and so forth. And we're going to look at some of those things uh, tomorrow afternoon. I'd just like to finish um, <clears throat> with uh, a prophecy in Malachi, where it talks, where God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall restore the heart of the fathers upon the children, and the heart of the children upon their fathers. That is the next event that is going to happen. But by the time that event happens, by the time God sends Elijah to the Jewish people and restores the heart of Abraham, in those people, um, it's going to be too late for us if we haven't looked into these things. So I appeal to you to look into those things, into those things now, because we see that we're getting very, very close um, to those events. And Jesus said also um, that this is going to happen. He quotes from Malachi, and, and he says that truly Elijah will come first. So I just want to finish with this verse from Isaiah chapter 18 says, All ye inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, see ye when he lifteth up an ensign on the mountains, and when he bloweth a trumpet, hear ye. And I believe that God, through all these events, is giving us an opportunity to look at this evidence, some of this evidence that we see here tonight in these, in these books where people wrote about these things so long ago. In, in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the things that we've looked at tonight, to look at this evidence and say, look, there's something here. I need to look into this more. Don't take my word for it, but uh, uh, get your Bible out. Look at some of these prophecies. Feel free to take some of the literature, um, and, but look at it with Bible in hand. Don't take what I say um, and, and look to see, is there something in these things? Because I think that... You know, when we see this type of, type of evidence, we really need to give it our attention and to put some time and say, you know, is there something here or not? Because if there is, then we really need to, to pay attention. So thank you very much uh, for your attention tonight in, uh, in, uh, in listening to uh, the presentation. Thank you.